0: I'm going to read it. I'm gonna... But here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to make a deal with me, right? Can you, like, keep your Bibles open while I read? Because I want to, um, as I'm working through the text, just have it open so that when I'm showing you stuff that we can look down. I want to make sure that your confidence is not in me, that, but our confidence is in the Lord. So uh, I'll reference scripture a lot, and you can help me out by just staying with it with me. All right. Hey, I'm going to set the stage. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're in Luke 24, and he makes two unique appearances. First is to these two dudes walking on this road uh, or the village named Emmaus, and then he just appears in this room with his disciples right after that. And so we're kind of tracking through two separate encounters with two separate groups of people. And this is Jesus after he's been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. I'm in mean, Luke 24, 13. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And Jesus said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people." the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight." And as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while, they were still, while, and, while, and, and while they still believed for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While He blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven." Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, would you meet with us now by your spirit and through your word? Would you open our eyes that we would see the wonderful things of your law? Would you show us who the ultimate hero of the Bible is? And would this be good news for our souls? I pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, so Eugene Peterson is one of my favorite living authors. He is a language scholar and he has written uh, the Message Bible, which is a translation of the Hebrew text for the Old Testament and where there's Aramaic. He also did some Aramaic work, but he also translated the New Testament from Greek. It's the Bible that I've given to both of my children. I, I love the way that he makes the Bible accessible. I read and preach from my ESV, but for my devotional times, I love to read the ESV alongside of the Message Bible. He's also the author of this book, and it's entitled Eat This Book. And I think Ken probably has it back there. This is where I got my copy from several years ago. But he opens this book with this story. He talks about his grandson. And so his, his wife picks up his grandson from school one day. And uh, they stop at a park, they eat lunch together, and his grandson eats his lunch. Then his grandson pulls his Bible out of his book bag, and he starts to read the Bible. And so he he says that he goes from left to right, top to bottom. He flips the pages. He does that for several minutes. And finally, he puts the Bible down and says, Grandma, I'm ready to go play. I've read my Bible. And the grandmother starts to laugh because he has just turned seven, and he doesn't even know how to read And so when Eugene Peterson hears this story about his grandson kind of going through the motions of reading the Bible, even though he can't read, he's amused at first. And then he writes this, is this not a picture of us? We want to be able to read the Bible and we know we should, but if we're honest, we don't know how to read it. He says, I've been a pastor for several decades, and I have found that reading the Bible is difficult, and the challenge of reading the Bible in our day has nothing to do with access to Bibles. He said, you could go into a hotel or a motel room right now and steal a Bible, and no one would arrest you, so it's not an access issue. He says, many of you probably have four and five Bibles laying around the house, it's not an access issue. He said, neither is it a literacy issue. He says, truth be told, most 10 year olds can understand a great deal of the vocabulary in the entire Bible. It's not education and it's not access. The challenge in our day is getting this book read on its own terms. That's the challenge. Reading this book on its own terms. That's what I want to work out tonight. Is how do we read this book on the terms of this book? Here's what I want us to consider. This is the first point. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, all right, so I wear glasses, right? I don't have them on tonight, but when I got my prescription that I had no idea that your, each eye can have different acuity, and so you might have one prescription in one eye, and you might have another prescription in another eye, and so when they examine your eyes, they're, making, they're, they're looking at each eye individually, and then they will correct your vision by giving you a prescription for each eye, and then what happens is beautiful. The fusion process takes place that once this eye is corrected and this eye is corrected, then this fusion takes place where you can see reality as it really is. I want you to think about that, that we're gonna look at two big points tonight, and I wanna correct this left eye, and I wanna correct this, well, correct this right eye, I wanna correct this left eye, and I'm hoping that something fuses together that helps us sort of read the Bible. Y'all with me? Here's the first point, that scripture is important. I know that sounds so elementary, but we're going to unpack it anyway. Hey, this is the resurrected Jesus talking here. And you can kind of look up at me right here. This is Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And so just think about the life of Jesus and think about when his stock increasingly rises. Right? So if he's a kid, all right, dude, you you are not God, right? Okay, you're a teenager, and you don't curse, and you don't drink, and you don't do all these other things. You don't talk back, and you never think about not talking back. Okay, I get it. And then you become an adult, and you still sort of have this beauty about yourself, this perfection about yourself, and then you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you're empowered to actually obey, and then you go out and do miracles, teaching, preaching, calling men to yourself, raising the dead. You do all of this stuff, and Jesus' stock is going up and up and up this right here, though, like this cat has been raised from the dead. Now, his, I mean, he has just broken the bank, right, with credibility. If, 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 if he's talking at this point, I'm all ears. You have just done something that no one else has done. Now, here's the thing. In our day and age, you can win a gold medal, and then tomorrow you will get a deal for Twinkies, Right? you can win the NBA championship and you will sign a big contract with Under Armour, right? That that's the way the world works. The world looks at your personal accomplishments and then it latches on to what you've done and says, hey, will you now market my product? And studies show that the moment someone signs this big contract with this company to market their product, their product sales go up at least 4%, right? Forbes magazine. You can check that out if you want to. What in the world is Jesus marketing after he has been raised from the dead? What does he talk about when he has come out of the tomb? What is the one product he holds up and says, You need to read this, you need to know this, and you know what it is? It's the Bible. That this is the, the resurrected Jesus raised from the dead. He has done something no one else has done. And the first thing he talks about is the Bible. Now you see it, verse, verses 13, when he's meeting these two men who were going to the village, Emmaus, and they're having this conversation with him, and, and we've read it, but look at what he says in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe All that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. He's endorsing the scriptures. He's endorsing the prophets. The New Testament was not written at this point. And here's what he's saying. Go back and read the prophets. Look at verse 32. And after, I mean, Jesus, he just vanishes. Did did y'all catch that? That he talks to them, they recognize him. And look at verse 31, and he just banished. He just disappears from their sight. And look at what they said. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see that? The scriptures. Switch scenes now. These two men, the first thing he talks about is the scripture. Now, go to the 11, the 11 disciples who are in a room, afraid, locked in a door, and Jesus just kind of pops in there with them too. And look at what he says to them, and they're kind of like, man, are you a ghost? And he says, no, a, 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 a ghost does not have flesh and bones. Look at my hands, look at my feet. Can you give me some fish to eat? I will eat with you. I'm not a ghost, this is Jesus. And notice what he says to them in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He says the exact same thing to this separate set of men. Now he expounds it beyond the prophets. Now you see that those three headings, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, That might not ring a bell, but I put this little handout. Do we have it? Oh man, you cannot read that, especially you in the back. So I'm just gonna tell you what it is. Miles Van Pelt was one of our Old Testament professors at RTS, and right there where you see the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, this is how the Hebrew Bible is arranged. In three categories, the Law, the Prophets, And the Psalms. And do you hear what Jesus is saying? The entire Old Testament is important. He opens their minds to understand their entire Old Testament. All right, thank you. This is important, right? Because I can think of at least five or six things that if I were raised from the dead that I would want to talk about. Or if I watched him after he'd been raised from the dead that I would want to hear about. First thing, bro, what does it feel like to die? Can you talk to me because I'm gonna die one day? Can you tell me what to expect? What is it like to be resurrected, to just come back? What was happening in that in-between time? What were you doing? Where were you? How did you get out of the tomb without moving the rock? How is it that, that you're here and I can see you with these eyes, but I can't really see you and make sense of you in your glorified body? And how did you just disappear when I was talking to you and then you just showed up in another room several miles away in another city? Like, come on, like, can you think about all the things that Jesus could have talked about and they would have been all ears? And you wanna know what? He is silent. About all that other stuff, as if to say that's not that important what's important is this scripture that's what I want to impress upon you is how important the holy scriptures are so Eugene peterson he um started this translation project that started with the Psalms and Bono of U2 got a copy of Eugene Peterson's Psalms and before his concerts he made a habit to read through them and they've done some songs based on some scriptures but they they were deeply influenced by the work of Eugene Peterson and so Bono decides that hey I want to meet this Eugene Peterson guy Can can, can I meet him? And so Eugene Peterson is in the middle of translating this, and he gets interrupted by a, a mutual friend and says, Hey, Bono wants to meet with you. This is important. He is important. And you know what Eugene Peterson says? No, this is important. I will meet with him later. And he would not meet with Bono until he finished translating the entire Bible. Isn't that a beautiful example of how important the scriptures are? That this man would say, I'm going to finish this, and I'm going to leave this. This is important right here, right now. The first thing, if we're going to have this corrective view of the Bible, is we have to see that there are very few things on this planet more worthy of your time than the book that we have right before us. The second thing that Jesus does to sort of correct our lens is he teaches that scripture is ultimately about him. You can write that down for point number two. Now, I do, a lot, I do a lot of premarital counseling. I think I did like 10 weddings in one year. And there's kind of this, 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 this company that I like to use to help me sort of do a premarital assessment and it's called Prepare Enrich. And the couple will go off and they will each take this assessment individually. Takes them about 45 minutes and then it gives me their results. And outside of looking for compatibility in, in all of these other areas, it also gives me a, an idealistic distortion report, and it basically tells me who, if it's, who, who in this couple has a distorted view about the relationship. And the way it gets at this, by, it's, it's by asking a series of questions like this. Every new thing that I have learned about my partner has always pleased me. My partner always gives me the love and affection I need. My partner and I understand each other completely. My partner completely understands and sympathizes with my every move. My partner has all the qualities I've ever wanted in a mate. Now, if you date anyone, you know that that's not true. (laughs) I've been married for almost 14 years, and my wife does not always understand me. She does not always get me. We do not always agree. And so basically, in a relationship, it is normal for one person to be so attached to this other person and the relationship that they see everything through this lens of distortion. That is a wrong way to look at your spouse. But it is the right way to look at the Bible. And that's what Jesus is saying. The entire Bible is about me. All of it is about me. Every line is about me. And that's important because you see it in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look at verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You remember what Jesus said in John 539, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me. You cannot find life in the scriptures apart from me because the scriptures are about me, and if you reject me, you have no life, and you don't really understand the scriptures. That's a really big claim, right? For him to say that the entire Bible is about him, that you can have it all memorized, and if it does not find itself going back through into Jesus, it is off. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that the Bible is about himself? My daughter is 10, and we do homework together. And her homework is getting harder, right? So she's, instead of getting these little vocabulary words that my son gets and writing on a straight line that my son gets, like, she's getting, like, short stories sent home every night. And it's four or five pages, and she has to read them. And at the end of every short story, there are some questions. And so there's one that we read recently, and it was about a little girl who loves animals, And so it just gives all of these glaring details about how many pets she owns and what time she gets up to feed them and what time she walks them and what time they go to bed and how often she bathes them. And it goes on and on and on. And so it's obvious to me as the dad that the main idea of this short story is this little girl's love for animals. But they'll throw in some trick sentences, right? They'll throw in, hey, she has this bad little brother and he likes to torment the pets. Or she messed up her yellow shirt while she was washing the dog, right? And so at the end of every short story, it has this multiple choice. Hey, Karis, what is the main idea? And here's what she does until I'm I'm teaching her. Well, Dad, this is about the yellow shirt. I'm like, this is not about the yellow shirt. (laughs) Well, Dad, it's about the little brother. This is not about the little brother. Baby, this even the little brother is kin to the sister, right? The yellow shirt is what the little girl is wearing. This is about the little girl who loves her pets. And so she is learning to think big picture and not to get caught up in the details, but to see what the author intends on you to see when you read it. Here's my point. We read the Bible and we see names and we see places and we see peoples and we see things and we think that the Bible is about that stuff and Jesus says, no. The main hero, the only hero, the hero of the Bible is me. That everything in it is about me. Do not get lost in it. It's about me. I love Charles Spurgeon, and he has this beautiful illustration. He talks about this young man who preaches. And he, after he preaches, he asks the preacher, he says, hey, how did I do? And the preacher hesitates, and he says, if I must tell you, I do not like your sermon at all, because there was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, But do you not know that from every little town and village and Hamlet in England, there is a road that leads to London? Wherever I get hold of a text, I say to myself that this is a road. From here, I must get to Jesus Christ. And I mean to keep on this track until I get to him. Well, said the young man, suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ, that I will go over a hedge and a ditch, but I will get to him. You hear that? Show this other image. I know you cannot see this either, right? This is like London right in the middle. So this was like before Spurgeon had Google Maps. But if you were to go out there and Google London and look at these streets and trails and all of this stuff, there was one thing you will see. Every road leads to London. And when you read your Bible every road leads back to Jesus. Thank you. Now, what does this mean? It means that every single time you read the Bible we have to take that passage, that scripture, that text to the person and work of Jesus. And if we don't, we will use the Bible. We will think it is primarily self-help. We will think it is about us. We will think we will use it to justify what we want it to do, right? Now, let me give you one example Because we can do better than this. Let me caveat this by saying I'm not endorsing a political person. I'm not up here telling you who you should vote for. But I think we can do better than what I'm about to talk about, right? So, you might not know a guy by the name of Robert Jeffries. But he preached a sermon entitled, God is Not Against Building Walls. And he compared our president, Donald Trump, to Nehemiah. And in a sermon that he publicly preached in Washington, D.C., he says, President, build this wall. Be like Nehemiah and protect our country. And here's the thing, that is horrible exegesis. It is awful, and I don't care who you voted for, it is awful. You might be for the wall, but don't you use my Bible and my Jesus to justify it. When you don't take the wall through the work and person of Christ, you end up in left field making the Bible say stuff that God is not saying. Here's how you take the wall through Jesus. No one in this room would stand up and say, Pastor L, we need to build the temple and we need to offer sacrifices. No one would say that animal control would be all over you, okay? (laughs) You would vomit if you saw the temple system working as it worked in Jesus' day. But there's another reason why we won't rebuild a temple, because we know that the ultimate temple has come, that the place where God meets and dwells with his people is through the person and work of Jesus alone. We don't need another mediator standing before us offering intercession for our sins, slaying animals because Jesus says I am the Lamb of the God a Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. I am the great high priest who makes intercession for you. So no one in this room would say hey let's go back and rebuild the wall and let's rebuild the temple in Jerusalem no we wouldn't because we know that the real temple has come why do we need a wall when the wall was there in Nehemiah to protect Israel so that Jesus could be born you go read Matthew chapter 1 Jesus' lineage comes right through Zerubbabel. It comes right through a man named Eliakim. And these men were living in and around that time. God says, my son will be born from this lineage and you seed of the serpent, you will not kill him. He will come and I will keep him alive. And then when Jesus comes You know where he dies? Hebrews says he dies outside of the wall. He says, let us leave this city and go outside of the wall and bear reproach with him. We don't have a life in this city. We long for the new city. It was not about building a wall to make America safe. Jesus says, Peter, put down the sword. You live by it, you will die by it. He says, Peter, why are you worried about life? I hold you in my hands. You are safe and no one can take you from me. He says, do you not know that that I, I could summon legions of angels right now and they would do war against you, but I have come to die. It's my purpose to die. We don't need a wall to be justified from the Bible. You got to take that through the person and work of Christ. Because if you don't, you will be in left field. You will justify slavery you will think that this is a white man's religion and it's not. This is the word of the living God about a savior who has come for you and he's above all cultures. And this might seem wrong because we live in a day where we take selfies and we think that everything is about us. And Jesus says, no, brother, this Bible is not about you. It's about me. It is concerned and preoccupied with me. And here's my question. Is it possible that this book can be ultimately about Christ and at the same time for us? for us not about us it's for us and that's the final point have you thought about the disney classics can there be a beast without a beauty can there be a frog without princess tiana can there be an eric without ariel Can there be a toothless and hiccup without the Vikings living on the island of Berk? Like, how to train your dragon, that's my stuff, right? Like, I like one, two, and three, I get all of them, right? Wait a minute, is there a three? No, is there a three? There's a two, so I'm getting Rio confused over here. And then uh, what's the other one that we like in my house? Man, Kung Fu Panda, that's it. All right, so I got kids and we watch them all the time, right? And I do not get tired of them. Do you know the common theme in all of those movies? Something is messed up and someone is messed up and it takes sacrificial love from an uncommon hero to come and fix people who are messed up. It's the same story. You just change it to a dragon. You change it to a frog. Then you change it to a beast. And you change it to a princess. But it's the very same storyline. Why does that fairy tale sell? Because deep inside, we like stories of rescue. And here is what the Bible says. You are messed up. And your world is messed up. And you can't fix it. But there is a great hero who has come to fix it and to fix you. And his name is Jesus. And the scriptures say... It is written that the Christ must come and that the Christ must suffer and that he must die and that he must be raised from the dead and that there might be the forgiveness of sins and repentance. This is the story that we're all longing for, except it's not a story. It is reality. It is real. And that's why he says in verse 46 through 51, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You are witnesses and behold, I am sending you the promise of my father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power. And he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted his hands and he blessed them and he blessed them and he parted back and went up into the heavens. That is what the Bible is about. It is about God Almighty coming down to earth to rescue us from our own sins. And he's done it on the cross. He has taken your guilt. He has taken your shame. He has taken all of the judgment of God that is due you. And he has rendered to God all of the righteousness that God desires. And the Father is satisfied and is pleased with you through Christ the Son. And that is how you read the Bible. But you don't just read it. Jesus says, you believe it. This is not a fairy tale. This is real. Look at what they say in verse 21. We thought that you were the one that we hoped for. Look at verse 44. He opened their minds to teach them the scriptures. Look at verse 47. He says, you need to repent. Look at verse 25. Why why are you slow to believe? You see the theme? They hoped for rescue. The scriptures told them about rescue. And Jesus says, your rescuer has come. Believe it. It is real and it is good news. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would not fall upon deaf ears. Correct our vision. Help us to see that the scriptures are important. Help us to see that the scriptures are about Jesus. Help us to see that the scriptures are for us. They display the greatest love story under the heavens where God would join himself to people who've hated him, who've sinned against him, who've despised his name who were weak and unable to render obedience to you. I pray, Father, that we would grab hold of this truth from your word, that we would repent from our sins and that we would turn to you and rest in your love. I pray this in Christ's name.